Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is another summertime episode. We have an interesting and different episode today where we have three different guests in two different locations in a separate country. Welcome to the show, Adam, Michael, and Rodrigo. Happy to be here. Great to be here. So for the listeners, today we have, you'll be familiar with them through either their blog, Gestalt U, or Company Resolve, and the website is investresolve.com. But Adam Butler, Michael Philbrick, Rodrigo Gordillo are the managing directors, founders, CEO, president, all that good stuff of Resolve. And uh, tell you what, why don't you guys, one of y'all, maybe give us a quick background on your firm, how you came to work together, why in the world you're in cold Canada, and then uh, we'll get into the good investing stuff. Cool. I think really the the idea and conceptualization of, uh, of Resolve was born out of the 2008 financial crisis. And it was the realization that certain things work and are, are very important and certain other things aren't. And that really set us off on the path to uh, do more of what worked and really think about that very deeply and approach that from a, a very quantitative perspective. And I think that launched us through a path of a number of different firms, which eventually led us to be uh, our own independent firm about a year ago. In fact, our one-year anniversary is uh, September 1st. Congratulations. Very cool. And are you guys all from Canada, originally Canadians, from different places? Um, and, and where are you now? Oh, no, we, we're not. I, Rodrigo, of course, the Latin American name. I'm Peruvian, and I've spent half of my life in uh, Peru and the other half over here in, in Canada. The immigration policies here were, were much, much easier than anywhere else. And I think you could say that Mike and Adam are from Canada, but I don't know if like, you know, a farm boy from Niagara on the lake and, uh, and a new fee from the East Coast would be, would qualify as an average Canadian. Doesn't get any more Canadian. Between us, we're average. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I expect a lot of friendliness uh, out of this conversation. Well, look, let's go ahead and start diving in. You know, you guys have been famous and have put out a lot of great content, including the book Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad. And typically, y'all's focus is on what we call top-down investing. And what that means for the listeners is investing based on asset class levels or sectors or industries rather than bottom-up investing, which may be picking individual stocks and whatnot. So why don't you guys start with kind of thinking about, and you were talking about in your book, you know, starting from kind of the the basics of a 60-40 portfolio, which is 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and then the global portfolio, and then kind of how you guys think about top-down investing in general. And then we'll segue probably into a little more of the dynamic tilts, et cetera. The basic fundamental recognition is that asset allocation 
completely dominates long-term portfolio outcomes, right? There's a, there's a pile of research out there. Most of it is really misunderstood. The Brinson study is a perfect example where the original research claimed that 90% of returns were explained by asset allocation, and then everybody came aboard and said that allocate, asset allocation is responsible for 90% of performance, and then Ibsen and Kaplan came out and, and busted a bunch of those myths. But, I mean, anyway, you slice it, asset allocation is the dominant theme, whether it's 50% or two-thirds or 90%, whatever, asset allocation is what matters to long-term portfolio outcomes, right? So that was number one. So once you realize that, then it's, okay, well, how do you effectively move into asset allocation? And, you know, once you start really digging into some of the more advanced asset allocation techniques and realizing that 60-40 works really, really well in some economic environments, but really struggles in others, then you start to want to broaden your scope and you want to think more globally. And so that was the really the, the starting point for, for our journey. And if you look at the global portfolio, almost no one invests in the global portfolio, uh, the global market portfolio, which is roughly, and I'm going to paraphrase here, around 50% global stocks, 40% global bonds, of which a chunk is corporates. So you could actually say maybe it's 55, 45, and then maybe 10% other, but it's pretty darn close to 50, 50 stocks, bonds, but with a, with a tilt towards stocks. No one invests in that. And there's probably reasons why. You guys talk a little bit about this. Uh, maybe you could speak as to your ideas there and also the inherent biases that people have and how they implement it. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I, I love the, the whole idea that the global market portfolio is the combination of all the world's bias. Right, Every country on the world suffers from a pretty significant home country bias, and that combines into a global market portfolio, which no one is tracking towards. So I think one of the main reasons no one uses it is because of the massive tracking error between what they might think is their goal or what their friends are doing versus what that portfolio is achieving. That leaves, I think, a pretty substantial opportunity for investors. So when you, when you think about considering all the asset classes out there, I'm pretty sure most portfolios don't don't include things like emerging market sovereign bonds or you know international real estate as pieces of a well diversified portfolio that will will add benefit in the long term. And, and so, do you guys start with that? Is is it, do you are you, is your starting point the global market portfolio? How do you think about starting to construct these global portfolios? And two, you may want to talk a little bit about you know our buddy Jake at Economic wrote an interesting blog post recently that that has been widely circulated. Uh, do y'all want to go down that uh that alley? Sure, I'll, I'll I'll take a crack at that. So let's start with where to where we start with the asset allocation process, right? So the as you say, the global market portfolio is is the aggregate portfolio of what everybody owns, but but no single investor actually owns it, right? So it's this strange concept. But the way we think about the global market portfolio is as the only passive global portfolio, literally the only passive true expression of a, of a passive, efficient market view is this global market portfolio. And it is, from that perspective, really the only passive benchmark, as in not active benchmark, for a multi-asset solution. So we actually use that as our benchmark for all of our multi-asset strategies. You guys you guys need to pick an easier benchmark. That's a, no one in the mutual fund world picks a, that's a, 
That's actually a tough benchmark to beat. You guys need to pick like LIBOR plus 100 basis points or something. <laughs> I know. It's so true. It's and, and so many people choose like 60, US 6040 or some people actually just choose S&P 500 as the benchmark for a global diversified tactical strategy. And then it just means you've got five years of massive tracking error and probably massive underperformance, especially, for example, over the last six or seven years, anybody, any any tactical or global strategy that's picked the S&P 500 as a, as a bogey has been taken out back and, and shot, right? But, you know, we just tried to pick a, a benchmark that was truly reflective of the opportunity set, right? This, these are all of the assets that are available to investors to allocate to, and we just take the average allocation of, of everybody's views, and that becomes our, our bogey. And then where we deviate from that in a systematic way, then we expect to earn an edge on that. And so that seems fair. So let's talk a little bit about your process, about how you do deviate, because you know if someone wanted to just go buy the global portfolio, they can do that for very cheap, what people would consider just be global beta. How do you actually, In you know, you've done a lot of research reports that we'll link to some in the blog, but one in particular that I liked recently about risk parity. Can you explain a little bit about the thoughts about how you now construct these portfolios? Also talk a little bit about the theory of what risk parity is in general for the listeners that aren't familiar. So going back to the global market portfolio, right? The first thing you got to do is say, okay, this is a passive benchmark. Any deviation away from this is a an active bet. So how do we best make those active bets? Well, that 55-45 portfolio, it may seem that it has is contributing the same amount of risk to the client's portfolio, but in reality, we know that the equity side of that dominates the volatility of the, of the portfolio. In fact, when you measure it, you know, depending on who you're citing, the equity side represents 90 to 98% of the volatility of that portfolio. And the bond side of the equation offers very little in terms of diversification benefits. Well, the global market portfolio, the first thing that it does is it allows you to get exposure to a broad array of risk premia, global asset classes that will do well in different market environments. So you, you, you may own some, uh, some gold, some commodity-driven economies. You're going to have some bonds, government bonds that are going to do well in a deflationary environment. So that's step number one. And then the step number two for risk parity is to make sure that there's balance. And balance happens when you observe the volatility of each asset class and their correlations to each other, right? So the, the traditional risk parity methodology looks at long-term estimates, correlations, and volatilities and gives a higher weighting to those lower volatility and more diversification, more diversified asset classes than the riskier asset classes like equity and so on. So if you look at, at a traditional 60-40 portfolio and you'd want, if you wanted to risk balance that, you'd look at something like 80% bonds and 20% equities. And then depending on what, uh, what return you'd want, you would then lever that portfolio up. Let's talk a little bit also, maybe comment on leverage. And if you go back to investment theory that's been around 50, 70 years and talking about the efficient frontier and the capital market line, you know, the best way that people want to invest is to find the highest essentially sharp ratio portfolio, which will often be these risk parity type portfolios. And I think Bridgewater used to talk a lot about this is that there's no reason to accept asset classes prepackaged the way they are. So if you want to go buy the S&P 500, you get, you know, let's call it, we're rounding up, but 8% return, 15% volatility. 
there's no reason to accept that. You could say, well, I want stock exposure, but only at half the volatility. So I'm going to put, I'm going to delever that down. So I'm going to be targeting, say, 4% returns, but it's 6% volatility. Or you could leverage it in the same thing with bonds. And so one of the things about risk parity was equalizing either the volatility. So you're going to say, I'm going to target 10% volatility for all asset classes. And so once you start to think that way, it's a very fundamental shift for a lot of people. Then you can design the portfolio and then lever up or down the entire portfolio to whatever desired level of volatility or risk you want. So maybe talk a little bit about how y'all think about leverage and constructing these portfolios. And then we can also talk a little bit about your dynamic shifts or tilts as well. The thing about leverage is that it just allows you to scale risk. And so the fundamental shift that a person goes through when they begin to think in terms of risk parity is they begin to think in terms of risk allocation instead of capital allocation. And this is a fundamental shift in how you think about every aspect of portfolio management. And it's so critically important for the reasons that Rodrigo highlighted, right? Because you want to have an allocation to this wide variety of different global risk premia that behave differently in different economic environments. So you've always got something that's killing it in your portfolio because it's really perfectly aligned with the current economic environment. You've always got something that's killing you in the portfolio because it's exactly the opposite of what would thrive in this in the current economic environment. But then the balance of the portfolio is chugging along normally as if nothing's as if nothing's irregular. You get this sort of steady performance through through thick and thin. But the problem is that all these different you know diverse asset classes have very different risk characters. And so if you think about them on an equal capital allocation basis, then what ends up happening is that the more volatile assets that, by the way, also tend to be more highly correlated with one another, end up completely dominating the risk of the the portfolio. So the portfolio ends up being completely susceptible to the economic environment that, for example, equities do well in. The other asset classes that do well in different regimes have no opportunity to exert their benefits when those regimes actually manifest. So it's this risk interpretation instead of a capital interpretation that really defines the transition to risk parity. And then we actually view all asset allocation methodologies through this risk lens. You know, one of the things I think is a big challenge for people, one, is they don't necessarily have a large appreciation for history, particularly if they're younger. So a lot of people aren't thinking about, particularly in the U.S., highly inflationary environments. And so often have under allocations to asset classes that did great in that sort of rising inflation environment or even a rising bond yield environment, which hasn't happened here in 30 years. Canadians in general, y'all tend to think about natural resources uh, a little bit more than I think Americans do, but trying to build a portfolio that can respond in any environment, I think is critical because what happens with a lot of people is, you know, an asset class will do great for a few years were terrible. And so emerging markets and commodities the last three years have done horrible. And then they abandon those asset classes, rents or peat. So talk and you guys do a little bit. It's not that just you're allocating to a risk parity portfolio. You're actually dynamically managing that or actively managing it. Can you talk a little bit about your process moving away from the buy and hold? I think it's also just to finish up on leverage. One of the things that everybody's told is about the avoidance of leverage, right? You can own the S&P 500, which has got a debt to equity of two to three, and that's okay, 
but God forbid you lever a well-diversified and balanced portfolio, which is, I think, one of the key things to consider as well as a, as a persistent edge. There are willing losers who would rather contaminate their portfolios with more equity in order to try and achieve a return rather than lever a diversified portfolio. I think that's a key point to the way we think about leverage as well. Building on that to think about the idea of how we might dynamically overlay some thought process on risk parity in order to improve the returns, we think about that from the perspective of what Adam mentioned earlier and the idea of if you're really well diversified and you've got assets exposed to all of these economic regimes that can, can manifest, you're going to have something that's killing it and you're going to have something that's killing you. And now you want to overlay a process in which you think about those really negative returns that are very serially correlated and persistent, where you've got an asset class that just uh, persistently goes down, and you want to just think about a way in which you could back away from it, not eliminate it from the portfolio, but just reduce the exposure to it over time and have a process that is not an on-off process, but more of a... A, I think about it, thinking about it in a probabilistic way, uh, what might the positive returns be, what might be the magnitude of those, and, and if they're going to be, uh, let's say it's a 70% chance that those returns are not going to be positive, you would reduce exposure to that asset class by 70%. And, and that's the way we think about dynamically overlaying a process in the portfolio that improves the results. Yeah, would, would, would you and, add? and that's for the, uh, so the risk parity methodology is dynamic and the fact that we're looking at an absolute momentum filter like Mike described. But we're also, versus other more traditional risk parity approaches, we understand that the correlation and volatility numbers change drastically from month to month and they deviate drastically from the mean. So we also observe volatilities and correlations consistently to, and adjust the weights based on those changes. And then we de-emphasize asset classes in a, in a consistent negative trend. Our flagship solution actually does an even stronger tilt and it's looking at relative momentum, right? So instead of always being invested in all asset classes, this is a, our adaptive asset allocation framework actually eliminates asset classes altogether while still keeping the asset classes that we that we hold, keeping them in balance by observing their volatilities and correlations, right? So we're just, we're just looking at the universe more often and we're applying a momentum factor on both and then maximizing diversification by optimizing for uh, risk parity. All right, guys, interesting on the shifts. How often are you guys looking at these portfolios to make changes? Is it daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly? What's the kind of updates that y'all uh, implement? So we, depending on the mandate, we look at it in different ways, right? So the uh, we have an ETF that we launched in Canada that just for operational reasons. And you know what? The, uh, the, the statistical difference between looking at something daily and trading daily is uh, very small. But in this in this particular product, we look at it on a weekly basis. And if a rebalance is necessary, we'll rebalance, but it's not always necessary. The risk parity is much slower moving. The fund that we run in Canada and the mandates that we uh, run in the United States and separately managed accounts, we're observing that universe uh, more often uh, on a daily basis. But again, we don't trade unless the new suggested uh, allocations are statistically significantly different than the old ones, right? So there are some times we're not, we're not trading at all for a month, month and a half, and sometimes where we're trading a few days in a row if things are changing quite drastically. Maybe we'll shift gears a little bit here, but in your book, you guys also talk a lot about 
valuations. So my first question is, does valuations come into play at any point in your portfolio construction process? And then two, would love to hear a little bit about how you guys construct your valuation for, say, for U.S. equities and any global equity market, and then what those estimates would say now. Mab, let's face it, you're sort of the king of updating these global valuation metrics, and, and I, I follow your publications on that every time it comes out, which is great, especially with the uh, with the CAPE stuff. And, and valuation is such a contentious topic. You know, everybody is using valuation, or most people use valuation, basically just to confirm whatever their market view is, right? So, you know, you've got these studies that come out from some of the investment banks with 12 or 13 different valuation metrics, but most of them only go back to 1986, right? You know, you've got sort of 30 or 40 years of data where, like, people need to remember that in 1994, the market went into a complete phase transition, right, where we we had never observed market valuations in history prior to 1994, like what we observed after 1994. And then once it busted through that top in 94, it just kept going and going and doubled and doubled again, right? And so, of course, at the peak of 2000, we had the most expensive markets that we'd ever seen in the U.S. The most expensive markets, to my knowledge, in the last century were in Japan in the very late 90s, the peak of their bubble. Our studies show that if you use the very long history for U.S. stocks, and I think your your analyses confirm this too, that stocks go through these very long cycles where the price-to-earnings ratio or the price-to-book or whatever, the valuations, the multiples rise, rise, rise for for 15 or 20 years. We go through this secular multiple expansion, and then we peak, and then we go through this long secular multiple contraction. rise and fall of the valuation multiples actually account for the vast majority of the variance in returns from year to year and from decade to decade, right? And so all we did is we said, okay, well, let's look at these valuation multiples. Let's find ones that have very long histories, right? Like the cyclically adjusted PE ratio from Schiller that you always talk about, the Q ratio that you can actually get from the Fed's Z1 report, the market cap to GDP, few other things, and then look at them on a variety of different scales and a variety of different forecast horizons, what have you. See what seems to work about the best, and then when you put it all together, you get what you kind of expect, which is we're near the peak of a cycle. Stocks, in this, especially in the U.S., are expensive relative to history, and we know that valuations versus returns are kind of like a seesaw, so you get expensive valuations, you get lower future returns, right? Now, it doesn't mean that the market's going to crash tomorrow. Probably doesn't, right? But but over the next 10, 15 years, for those who are trying to put together capital market expectations for retirements or sustainability of institutional corpus, et cetera, well, they can use these to inform their expectations and budget accordingly. And so y'all's composite valuation metric, I think, has one of the lower expected return projections. What, what are you guys projecting right now for 10, 15 years, U.S. equity market? And I don't know if you track it for other markets. You can comment there too if you do. But for U.S., what are you expecting a nominal or real basis next 10, 15 years? Well, we're, we're actually in the process of, of updating it. We're going to automate the report and we're pro- going to publish it every quarter. We actually haven't updated it since Q3 2014. You know, I, I'm going to guess just based on where we are relative to then, 
the fact that earnings have, have continued to rise a little bit while valuations have, have or, or sorry, the price of the S&P has stayed relatively the same, maybe a little bit higher, that we're looking on the order of sort of 3 or 4% nominal, 1% or 2% real over the next sort of 10 to 20 years. Okay. Well, that's not that's not too doomsday-ish. Do you guys calculate this for any foreign countries at all or putting in the plans? No, it's tough to do the foreign countries because you don't have the same length of data, right? So it's even for even for the US, if you take a cyclically adjusted PE ratio that uses a 10-year smoothing factor and you want to then forecast for 10 years, well, if you've got 130 years of data going back to 1880, then you've really only got 13 independent samples, right? So your the statistical significance of your forecast is actually not very strong. It just gives you a general direction. There's not a lot of precision in the estimate. And then if you're using data that only goes back to the mid-80s or 70s or what have you to, to, to find the equilibrium value for other countries, then obviously the the forecast becomes statistically meaningless. You could use the the U.S. equilibrium, but there's pretty good arguments to be made that that different countries that don't have the reserve currencies won't have the same equilibrium valuations that the U.S. market will have. And so there's all these extra variables that you'd have to account for. So we just just don't bother. We figure the U.S. market is whatever, 50% of global market cap. So it's pretty indicative of what investors should expect generally. Well, it's interesting because if you think about these really long-term secular moves in valuations, et cetera, in the Japanese example you gave is spot on. And, you know, in the 80s, Japan hit the highest CAPE ratio we've ever seen at a value of almost 100, whereas the U.S. was a measly 45 in 99. And it's back down to 25 now, so, of course, much lower. One of the cool things about studying history, one of my favorite charts in your book is that you examine asset allocation models. And we actually talked about this in the last podcast where we say one of the most sacred rules in investing people assume is that equities will outperform bonds. But there's been very many periods of 20 to 40 years in the US where equities don't outperform bonds. And there's a couple markets right now where over the past, I believe, 20 years, Japan being one, Canada being another, where bonds and stocks have roughly the same return. But the chart you have in your book is you say, look, let's apply some asset allocation models in Japan. And again, Japan's second largest economy in the world, now maybe third, but and demonstrate how they would have performed because, uh, you know, most traditional asset allocation models in Japan would have done horrible over the past 20, 30 years. But you show something like using a more global approach and the permanent portfolio. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that and the kind of J- Japanese playbook because it also looks like the U.S. and a lot of the world is starting to look a lot more like Japan over the past few years. Absolutely. You know, the Japanese model, the experience of of Japan over the last 30 years, I don't think it can be discounted that the developed world is in the process of experiencing some very, very similar dynamics as Japan. And that's why we felt the Japanese example was maybe more relevant today than, than many people would like to admit. I mean, you're right. The, the permanent portfolio, which includes both cash and, and gold, and then, uh, so it's so just, just to rehash, right? Permanent portfolio, classically from Harry Brown, 
was 25% cash, 25% gold, 25% uh, treasury bonds, and 25% stocks. Of course, Japanese stocks over the past 30 years or more are down about 60 or 70%, but the permanent portfolio delivered positive compound returns over, over that period. So again, just an, another example of where thinking about diversification from a, an economic regime standpoint uh, can really pay off. I think it's worth, it's, it's worth stating, though, that is the diversification that you like. And if you think about the permanent portfolio from an American's perspective over the last, I don't know, five or ten years, that's the diversification you don't like. And it's, it's a strange thing because you have this, this opportunity to, to be diversified in a permanent portfolio, and we highlight Japan. But an American investor today looking at that type of diversification may shun that because their 60-40 has done so, so well. It's beaten almost everything. You know, it's funny. If you look at permanent portfolio in our book, we examined all these different portfolios. And permanent portfolio was one of the most stable. It was, it was one of the lowest performers, if not the lowest performer. But that's to be expected because it has half the portfolio in cash and bonds. You know, I, I want to hear what's y'all's perspective on gold. Most of the Canadians I know are up there with our friends in India that they love gold, <laughs> you know, more than anything. Is this something, what, one, what's y'all's perspective on it? And, and you included in the portfolio portfolios. Anyway, what, what, do, what do y'all think about gold? I think, I think Canadians, first of all, you know, if you, if you ask a barber for a haircut, he's, he's going to tell you you need a haircut. And a, and a Canadian economy based largely in resources will, uh, if you ask Canadians, will largely tend to skew towards wanting to be bullish on resources. We're, we're global in nature, so we don't, we don't think that way at all. We um, as in resolve. Yeah, we, we as in resolve. <laughs> but I think we were all probably chuckling, as you, as you mentioned, gold. And I think from the perspective of the permanent portfolio, the reason it was included was just to be be true to what, what Harry Brown had laid out. Yeah, and, and yes, in Canada, I would say peak oil theory, hyperinflation, the world is going to come to an end and commodities and gold seem to be a, a, a strong storyline. Um, and, and especially now that gold's revived itself a little bit, it's becoming, it's getting, all, all the old guys that uh, hadn't said much for a couple of years are now starting to, to pipe up again. Well, I'll be, I'll be giving a speech here in Vancouver in about a week or two, so I, uh, I will pleasantly see, see what kind of pulse I can have on the ground there. But yeah, it seems, my, my experience when I go skiing or chat with my fellow Canadian, or Friendly Canadian, sorry, not fellow, um, is is similar. All right, well, let, let's try. So let, let me let's just we think we think of gold as a unique return stream and a diversifier. So that's how we think of it. We're loath to talk about it as Canadians because everyone will remember what we said and they will they will just sit on the edge of every word on gold. And to us, is if it adds diversification, has a, a good return and trend, it'll be in the portfolio. If not, it'll be out of the portfolio. But. You know, talking about it just is a losing conversation. You should see how happy the advisors, the Canadian advisors we're talking to are now when they ask how much gold you have in your portfolio and we just have a 20% allocation, just added a 20% allocation, they couldn't be happier even though it could be gone tomorrow. It's, it's one of the more polarizing asset classes because you have on one hand someone like Buffett who talks about it being a pet rock and then someone like Ray Dalio, largest hedge fund in the world, who talks about, he's like, if you don't invest in gold, you don't understand history, basically. So there's a, it's of all the asset classes, it's one of the more polarizing. You know, And it was one of the few 
that really helped in the 70s. I mean, the 70s sucked for investing with stocks and bonds unless you had a lot of inflationary assets like commodities, emerging markets, perhaps, if you could even allocate to them then, or, or gold in particular. The 70s was really tough. One of the things you guys talk about, there's a couple more topics I want to touch on um, that I thought was interesting, is you talk a little bit about portfolios, but also the sequence of returns, and particularly for retirees. And this is a topic that our investors I, I'm are very interested in, and we haven't talked much about. Maybe you all could touch a little bit on, you know, your, your topic in the book of a sequence of returns and how that why how and why that matters. It's interesting to think about the average uh, investor, risk taking investor that has a majority of their money in equities. You know, I think they're generally prepared to take some volatility and some underperforming years in order to achieve something close to a long-term expected return. But the problem is that those negative years or negative periods can last a lot longer, a lot longer than what, what they would normally think they would. And in fact, we outline a period from 1966 to 1997 where the Dow Jones annualized at 8%, right, on average. But for, from 1966 to 1982, the returns were zero. And from 1982 to 97, returns were around 16%, right? Again, on average, it's like having your head in the freezer and your feet in the fire, right? In the middle, you're just right. On average, you're eight, but you have these these very different periods. And somebody that retired in 1982 without even trying would have left a huge estate. Somebody retiring in 1966 would have run out of money within seven years, right? So these are the things that happen when you concentrate your portfolio in a single asset class. My father concentrated all of his portfolio in a single asset class, which was cash in the safest bank of Peru in 1988, right before inflation went from 20% to 7,200%. I mean, he could have used some gold there. He could have used other, some U.S. equity, some other asset classes. Right? So the point we're trying to make in the book is you need to, one of the reasons you need to move away from a single asset class is because you're going to reduce the, the amount you leave to luck by simply being diversified in different risk premiums. I think that's pretty powerful. It's, it's worth buying the book alone just for that chapter. Um, how do you guys think as Canadians, you know, a lot of our U.S. listeners are used to the U.S. being half the world's portfolio, being the reserve currency. How do you guys think differently as Canadians about your portfolio and currency exposures? I mean, I travel the world and you know, Americans, God bless them, think less about currencies than anyone else because usually they don't have to for the most part. But almost every other country, one of the first topics is always what's going on with their currencies. And you just mentioned a very relevant example of, of you know, inflation and hyperinflation. How do you all think a little bit differently than, than perhaps uh, your American counterparts? Well, you, you have to consider what is the home country that someone is spending in. But other than that, you still need to think about your portfolio from a global perspective, maximize the opportunity for diversification to prevent those large drawdowns and to reduce the opportunity that you go through one of those long periods of no returns and lots of volatility like the 1966 to 1982 period. And so when we look at our portfolios, we actually consider the Canadian dollar, US dollar relationship uh, sort of like another asset class. It, it moves dynamically. It's informed both by the, the cross rate of the currency as well as what the current portfolio holds. That's something that is 
that is unique to Canadians, Canadians, Australians, South Africans, those, all of those countries around the world who's not the reserve currency, uh, the U.S. dollar is not the reserve currency. I think if I'm an American, I, you really don't have to worry much about it and, until it's not the reserve currency of the world. It probably provides an opportunity of some kind from a, from a portfolio perspective, but I think it would be somewhat limited. Most of the return, well, not most, in a portfolio, you get the return from the asset class that you're considering as well as the currency. So the Japanese stock market is a combination of Japanese stock returns and the yen, as an example. And those those do benefit portfolios from a return and diversification perspective. One of the, one of the biggest criticisms of risk parity is you know that it's had a large tailwind from global interest rate moving from you know double digits down to the single low digits now or even negative. And I imagine your dynamic models is the answer to this. But how do you how do you think about risk parity sort of portfolios that? Usually, by definition, end up putting you more in fist, fixed income investments than than traditional portfolios. Is that something you guys think about? What's your solution to that? Is it something you don't worry about? What's uh What's your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you, not one conversation comes up about risk parity where we don't talk about the fact that it overweights bonds and that we're at, you know, depending on how you measure it, millennial low rates, right? So there's a couple of different considerations. The first is the tailwind that bond investors have experienced over the past 30-odd years, 36 years, has also benefited every other asset class with cash flows, right? Because when you value an asset class, any asset class anywhere, you value it on the basis of the discounted value of future cash flows. Well, the discounted value is based on a discount rate. Well, the discount rate is the the treasury rate. Now, you know, the different asset classes have different durations, and you'll use different terms of treasury markets to discount. But at every term, the discount rate has has steadily dropped for the past thirty odd years, and so every cash flowing market around the world has had exactly the same benefit from from that tailwind as bonds have themselves. And so that's another reason why we think that returns going forward are going to be a lot lower because, you know, this this very, very low discount rate has been priced across all different asset classes. The other thing to think about is that risk parity, although it has a large capital allocation to bonds, is no more sensitive to interest rate risk or inflation risk than to any other type of risk. That's the whole concept of risk parity, right? You're, you've got an equal, you'll do equally well in a deflationary growth environment as you do in an inflationary stagnation environment. It, just because you've got this large allocation of bonds doesn't mean that the the, the risk allocation in the portfolio is, is heavily weighted to bonds. Instead, what happens is, you know, a very good year for bonds might be, uh, like a 10-year treasury bond might be up 10 or 12%. A very bad year might be down 10 or 12%. But when bonds go down 10 or 12%, then something else in the portfolio will also have a good year. Well, a good year for gold is up 30 or 40%, or stocks is up 25 or 30%, right? So those other asset classes will have will provide ballast to the bond side if, in fact, we do go into a period of steadily rising rates. And, you know, of course, there is no guarantee, not by a long stretch, that we're going to see rising rates 
anytime soon, you know, for the next five or maybe 10 years or longer. Here's a good example on that. And by the way, it's very clear that you've heard that question before. <laughs> it may, may touch a nerve, but you know, funny example, there's two parts of this. One is that, you know, we say once Japan went below 2% nominal yield, which was, I believe in the late nineties, they haven't yep. gone back above, you know, it's been exactly. below ever since. And the other example was I was reading an article by Seth Klarman the other day, the manager of Baupost called, it was in Forbes or Fortune called Don't Be a Yield Hog or Don't Be a Yield Pig, where he's basically saying, you, you know, people are chasing into yield, don't chase into yield. That article is from the early 90s. And oh. so it's a good example of people, you know, how long have people been saying, you know, bond yields can't go lower. We got to protect our portfolio against a rising rate environment. Well, shit, that might not happen. You know, I mean, who knows? It could happen next year. It could happen 10 years from now. It could happen 20 years from now. And so a bond portfolio, we've always found, even in certain rising rate environments, can be a, a great buffer, like you mentioned, to the other asset classes. All right. A couple other topics. You guys, I believe, recently announced a new initiative partnered, I think, with one of our buddies we've had on the podcast. You guys want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. You, you know, we built out uh, Resolve and, and then started garnering some interest from both U.S. advisors and U.S. individuals. Now, for the advisors, it was pretty easy because we could partner up with them directly in, in one way or another. But for the individual investor, there wasn't really a clear solution. Now, luckily, this quant space is pretty small, and uh, as we search for a delivery mechanism in one of our conversations with Wes Gray from Alpha Architects, who I'm, I know you've had in the podcast before, awesome dude, great thought leader in the quant space, uh, he introduced us to the robo-interface that him and his partners had developed. I think they've now since spun that business off into its own entity called Trading Front. But the brilliance behind this interface is that as a quant manager like us, we need to be able to, to offer uh, institutional execution in, on the trading side. And we need that to deliver the solutions in a robust way for smaller accounts as well. And the only way that we can do that is through interactive brokers as a custodian. Our problem with that is that interactive brokers, while it's great for trading and it's great for fees, it's not necessarily great for client onboarding and, and reporting. So this marriage between the trading front user interface and interactive brokers, uh, institutional trading and razor thin fees allowed us to, to really provide something that, that is of value to the average American investor. So within a couple of weeks, we'll be able to provide access to our product lineup and it'll be based on an individual's risk profile, which mandate we will recommend. And of course, for those individuals who qualify for the use of leverage, we'll be able to, to hit different risk profiles uh, using our core mandates with intelligent leverage. And so you guys, let's, let's expand on that to the extent you can. So you're not going to just be offering one portfolio. You're going to be offering multiple solutions. And if you can talk about it, how you are going to actually be doing uh, the leverage, because I think people will find that particularly interesting. Sure. Uh, the the weights... So it is a traditional robo in that they're going to have to answer, individuals are going to have to answer a questionnaire and based on how they answer, there's going to be, they're going to be bucketed into different risk profiles and, and risk parity without leverage is a 6% vol product. So it's, it, it actually makes sense as a core solution for low risk individuals. And then we move up to our adaptive asset allocation framework, which takes more concentrated positions and asset classes. And that one would 
be for a medium risk investor. And then we also have this tactical equity mandate that excludes some of the lower returning asset classes and takes a more concentrated bet in the highest risk premia asset class, which is equities, but uh, reduces the tail risk by, um, by an absolute momentum filter, right? So they will fall into one of those three buckets. Then they'll have the option of saying, well, you know, I, I'm okay with leverage. If that happens and they qualify for leverage, then we'll be able to use our flagship product and use direct leverage from, so we, we will borrow directly from interactive brokers, whatever amount is needed in order to hit that volatility target. And of course, that at uh, 12% volatility, which is a balanced portfolio volatility, we'll be able to use uh, leverage only when it's appropriate to do so, right? So when diversification is really good and uh, the optimal portfolio has low volatility, we'll use leverage and lever into that 12% target. And when volatility starts to spike, we'll actually reduce leverage and even go into cash in order to to, to keep that daily volatility experience that the client signed up for consistent. And the same thing would go for a 16 volatility target profile. So we're really trying to bring the idea of uh, the Nobel Prize winning uh, idea of, of the capital market line and the efficient frontier and apply leverage to high sharp portfolios that eliminate, that reduce tail risk much more than what you would get from being 100% invested in equities in order to you know, give, a, give the investor a better chance of, of surviving in a low return environment. And are you guys doing that, I think you mentioned, with ETFs? Are you doing it with single stocks? Are you doing it with, what, what, how, what's the underlying portfolio look like? Our building blocks are exchange-traded funds the most liquid, cheapest exchange-traded funds in order to get access to the asset classes that we need to. You know I like to hear that. We uh, Interactive Brokers, by the way, for listeners, one of the most criminal practices of a lot of traditional brokers is if you look at even the big names, Fidelity, Schwab, probably E-Trade, and look at their margin rates for investors to borrow, it's often just, I mean, it's like 8 9 10% in a world of 1% interest rates. Interactive brokers is often Fed funds plus, you know, 50, 100 basis points, whatever it may be. It's much more reasonable. So if you're, if you're using leverage, by the way, investors at a traditional broker, please go look up what the margin rates are because it is uh, often atrocious. All right. Maybe one or two more questions and then we'll start to wind down. Do you guys think about managed futures at all? Do you allocate to that sort of asset class? And if you don't, any other ideas you're working on in the current research queue? Oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, we, we are big fans of uh, CTAs or uh, commodity trading advisors and their, and their funds. We generally like the trend following versions that are quantitative in nature and we do allocate to one in here in, in Canada for uh, client portfolios. So we're, we're big fans. And, uh, you know, we were having a discussion today about, you know, what would have more vol, the 60-40 uh, balance portfolio or a 60-40 portfolio of 60% stocks, 60% CTAs. And 40% CTAs. 40, 40% CTAs. And then thinking about what would the what would the correlation between stocks and CTA have to be in order for it to have a lower vol than the 60-40 stock bond? Anyway, yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that the big benefit. They, there's no argument that the tail risk will be much lower, right? CTAs have a tendency to do really well when everything else is doing really poorly. When trends are really strong, we really like trend as a factor and their ability to short, which is something that we don't do ourselves. So we're, we're big fans. 
Anything else you guys are working on in the research queue that we have to look forward to, or any any other studies on the blog? Any more going to do any more books? Any uh, anything uh, on the brain? We're going to be digging more into this sequence of returns issue that we talked about before, into talking about you know actual case examples where the risk parity concept, even a simple implementation, like a strategic implementation, and then of course we'll also walk into some of the more advanced methodologies as well. But but just this concept of, tr- of true diversification and balance can have a profound impact on the probability of a positive financial outcome, right? The, the probability that a client's going to hit it, his or her financial goals. Now, I think there's also a lot of need opportunities in, in the future space, either a complement to the existing strategies that we run or, or as completely new solutions. The, uh, you know, we, we've taken the view with our strategies, because they're all long-only, right? Risk parity is long-only, adaptive asset allocation is long-only. I know you guys run long-only strategies as well. And by, by implication, what we're saying really is that we believe fundamentally that these asset classes that we're allocating to, to will have or should have long-term positive risk premium, right? We should expect positive returns from these assets over time, right? Whereas a managed futures strategy takes the view that the they're agnostic. They, they don't think that there's any higher probability of earning a higher return or a positive return or a negative return on the assets that they allocate to. So, you know, if we do a, an attribution analysis on the type of global tactical asset allocation strategies that we embrace and that I know you embrace, Meb, what you see is about half the returns come just from exposure, long exposure to the underlying risk premia. And then the other half comes from the the systematic factor bets, the momentum bets or the value bets, what have you at a multi-asset level that we that we put on, right? So I just think it's it's important for investors to have a grasp of what their implicit what implicit beliefs they're expressing by investing in the solutions that they invest in. And you've got to, that's the starting point. And then once you've you understand what you believe and then how to best express that, you can figure out what the whether and if and how you might want to deviate from that in an intelligent way. Cool. Well, guys, um, let's start winding down. I, we always ask our guests, and there's three of you, so I don't know if you want one answer or three, but something that others may not have heard of that you find beautiful, useful, or somewhat magical. Y'all have anything for us today? All right. So I, I tried to think about things that have really changed or enhanced my life. And uh, one of the things that I can't live without anymore are my Bose noise reduction earphones. So these are the ones that sit inside the ear and they are the only version of a noise reduction headphone. If you travel on any kind of subway to and from work, you're probably not going to throw big headphones over your ears. And these ones work fantastically well. Even when you don't want the noise reduction, the clarity and the detail that you can hear in your music is a huge enhancement. So that that has been life-changing for me. Are these traditional wire or are they Bluetooth yet? Or are you, you still wire, wired into your... Uh, they are wired in. They're not Bluetooth. And uh, and that, that maybe we should send a letter to uh, Bose to uh, to get them to do a wireless version. Oh, you know they're on it already. You know they've been yeah. working on it for five years, right? They just need to get it exactly right. 
Exactly. Mike yeah. likes so much. He likes him so much that he buys a new set every two weeks that he loses. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And before any listener goes out and buys them, there's different versions for Android and Apple. Good to know. So you get the right one, which I have made, and they're like 350 bucks. So, yes, I have multiple pairs. Good to know. Anything else from you guys? Yeah, I have a, I have a cheaper... <laughs> I have a cheaper option. You know, one, I'm a father of two girls, four-year-old and a two-year-old, and a lot of what we do requires us to read, right? So trying to find time in my day to manage the team and also go back home, take care of the kids, take care of the wife, and, and read the material that I need to read is nearly impossible. So I've taken to, uh, you know, Audible and, uh, and podcasts like yours, which I love, but there's an app called Natural Read where you can, it has a built-in browser, so whenever you're browsing, if you're reading an article or blog online, you can just let it read it to you while I'm driving, or uh, you know, if I'm cooking for the family, I have it on my earphones, it reads it out to you. White papers, it, you put a PDF in there, it reads it all out to you. So you know, I'm an audible learner, and I think anybody that has an inclination to that should, should pick it up. So Natural Read is an app on, on the iPhone. What do, you, what do you listen to that on? What do I listen to that on? What do you mean? Your Bose Quiet Comfort. No, I, can, I can't afford it. I'll, I lose my stuff every two days. So. And can you can you select like Canadian accent on on that? You can Latin, actually. You Peruvian can, oh, you accent. Can different. You can select different voices, male, female, different accents. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Get a little Texas y'all in there too. Cool. That's right. Any more? Is that a third, or you or were you finished on that side? My, yeah, my, mine was a, a nerdy one that I'm not even gonna gonna spend any time on. But I think open source programming has been the single greatest life changer for me over the last three four years just learning r and, and python and all the different packages and and uh functions and stuff that other people produce to, to do all kinds of really cool shit is absolutely mind-blowing we make use of it in every single dimension of our business not just from the perspective of of development and, and strategy deployment but for uh, reporting for dynamic updating of of uh, reports like this expected future returns report that we're going to develop every quarter now. We've just got a script written in R that's going to aggregate data from all the different sources and automatically generate it with no human intervention, and it just gets posted. It's just amazing. That is literally my worst nightmare. I, I had sat through about one semester of C++ in college and it was the most physically painful course I've ever taken. So kudos to you, but at it programming for me is is so incredibly difficult. I I admire those that can do it. All right, well mine is a little bit different. I went skiing in Japan this year, which very few know has some of the best powder in the world. You know, Canadians may take that personally, but it, they get a ton of snow and returning from Japan almost feels barbaric. And then they have the most amazing toilets in the world. So we're talking heated seats. They have like 19 different functions that, that anyone, uh, that has been over there can, uh, can remember. But they, uh, there's a particular brand, I believe called Toto. And you can get in a, a little off Amazon in a, um, a not an adjustment. Uh, you can get a little kit to put on your toilet. You need a electrical outlet, but it is a life changing situation. Once you've sat on a heated toilet seat, uh, you'll never go back. So <laughs> that's slightly weirder, but uh, a huge, a huge suggestion. All right, guys. So look, 
A lot of fun today. I want to encourage you to keep cheering for the Canadian dollar to go down. Really want to go to the Powder Highway. It's like top on my bucket list. The ski Revelstoke and Kicking Horse and some of the resorts around there. But where where can people find more about you guys? If they want to read more, uh, where's the best places? Just as an aside before we do that, just just so you guys know, we almost named our company Revelstoke Asset Management. Oh, cool. So that's... Have you, have you all skied there? At, uh, kicking horse, yes. Revelstoke, no. Whistler, yes. All good been, spots. Uh, been out there, yeah. It's 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 awesome. Yeah, you you'll love it. Cool. You'll love it. You can reach you can reach us at investresolve.com. You can also connect at the blog uh, gestaltu.com. We also have a designated site to learn more about risk parity at riskparity.ca. And reach out to us on Twitter. We're all there. Oh, yeah, Just look us up, Google us, and we, uh, we, we always answer everybody's questions. You so. guys should have hit me up about five years ago when I was selling the riskparity.com domain name. That was you? <laughs> it, went, it went for a lot more. That's a good story for another time. I would have sold it for the price of a surfboard, which was their first offer for like 500 bucks. And it's an anonymous bidding process. And I ended up selling it for a decent five-figure amount because rightfully so, thought it's either some Yahoo that just wants to buy it for a blog or it's a probably big money manager. And they ended up, uh, they ended up hitting the, they ended up paying for it. So I, uh, for something I probably would have sold for $400, ended up selling for a long more. Good story. But now I own Risk Parity. If you want that, maybe Risk Party. Anyway, all right. All right, guys. Look, it's been a lot of fun. We'd love to have you back on in the coming months or years. For the listeners, you can always find the show notes. We'll link to a lot of these links for their website, as well as a lot of the papers in their book, Adaptive Asset Allocation. You can find that at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you like the show, please uh, suggest it to your friends. Leave a review on iTunes. And you can always send us Q&A and feedback for the episode at feedback at the mebfabershow.com. Thanks for listening and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by YCharts. YCharts is a web-based investing research platform that I've been subscribing to for years. In addition to providing overall market data, it offers investors powerful tools like stock and fund screening and charting analysis with Excel integrations. It's actually one of the few sites that calculates both shareholder yield as well as 10-year P.E. ratios for stocks, two factors that are notoriously hard to find elsewhere. The YCharts platform is fast, easy to use, and comes at a fraction of the price of larger institutional platforms. Plans start at just 200 bucks a month, and if you visit go.ycharts.com forward slash meb, you can access a free trial. And when you do, you'll receive up to 500 bucks off an annual subscription. That's go.ycharts.com forward slash meb. <laughs>